Hi everyone, my name is Steve Tudor and welcome to Beyond the City, the podcast that chats with 9320 contributors about their great passions. On today's pod, we couldn't hope for a more diverse subjects to celebrate, they being old obscure blues records and death in paradise. <laughs> Confused? Well, allow me to elaborate. <laughs> First off, we have our very own Howard Hawking, giggling away in the background there, who will share his love of comfort television. Then later, we'll be chatting with our very own Ali Fogg about long-forgotten artists such as Josh White, who fascinate him more and more. So let's get straight into it. Howard, you there? Well, clearly you are. <laughs> are, you, are you well? Imagine if you said Ali and Howard are talking about comfort TV and blues. Do you think they'd be able to work out who's talking about blues? <laughs> so Josh White, what, what, what's, what's the story? What, why you <laughs> oh, where do I start? <laughs> I'm looking forward to Alice, obviously, because yeah, yeah, yeah I'm learning about new stuff. But you may have to give me some names for images to do the uh, the banner for the tweet. I'm afraid. So. Just go with um, Johnny Hooker. Can't go wrong. <laughs> he could be setting me up for a fall there. He he could be anyone, couldn't he? So yeah, uh, yeah, I'm fine. Thanks. How are you? I'm well, well, but tired. But um, nice, easy day today. So how's yeah. your day panning out for you? Uh, yeah, not. Not exciting. Let's put it that way. Ah, okay. <laughs> so, uh, but that's fine. So, I'm, I'm not. I'm fine with unexciting days in the middle of the week. Well, exactly. Unexciting Wednesdays are the way to, way forward. That's the yeah. way forward. So, comfort telly. Right now, this is something we both love, um, and I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this also love it. I'm sure there's also a lot of people listening to this who maybe think they are in a minority, whereas I would suggest it's. A majority, but we'll get to that very shortly. First off, what examples would you give for programs that qualify as comfort telly? <laughs> this is a tough question because I think it—it it actually is. Thinking about it, most of the output that's going out there now is mm. can be termed comfort TV. Uh, in the world of streaming and hundreds of channels, the content we get is very different from what we used to. So. If you if you excuse the news, which definitely is never comfort television, no, no. documentaries, you know, certainly like the sorts of panorama that look into I don't know, yeah, controversies and past events and serial killers and police. I mean, some people love serial killers so much they they count that as comfort TV. I think large swathes of TV can be counted as comfort TV. I would say most a comedy show is comfort TV. A quiz show is comfort TV. Anything that makes you comfortable watching it and doesn't stir too many emotions, leave you on edge or leave you down. Mm. So reality TV, I would say, is a huge sector. I hate virtually all of it with a couple of exceptions. Uh, but yeah, each to their own, of course, is surely a huge part of comfort TV for people. But yeah. I would put, personally, I would put cookery shows and especially comedy above everything else as my go-to comfort TV. So, well, I wanted to kind of dig down to that in a second. Before I do, I would actually kind of say there, there's more non-comfort telly than, than you kind of give credit for there because there's, there's things like Line of Duty and Happy Valley and, and there's really good dramas. And I... I you know... I enjoyed them, but they're anything but comforting, are they? I mean, I, I'm edge. not sure. Sorry to put in. I would say those two you've given one, Happy Valley, is nowhere near comfort TV. That's what I'm saying, yeah. But yeah. Line of Duty, I think that's quite comfortable. I mean, really? Well, it's so... I mean, Happy Valley is so gritty and realistic where I feel Line of Duty doesn't feel as real, which is not a yeah, criticism. That's fair. That's it, fair. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's not comfort. It's not the definition of comfort TV. But Line of Duty does fit the criteria for me. I mean, I look mm. forward to it, and it's n- nothing that ar- nothing that happens in it is ever going to f- make me feel down. Or it, it f- basically, I think Comfort TV is you're basically switching on to switch off. So yes, it's your escape from a, a crap day, and you want to forget the world. And Line of Duty just nails that because you sit there, you're, enter- <laughs> you're entertained and you forget the world. So it is, it's quite a grey area for me. But yeah, Happy Valley definitely is not a comfort TV. Yeah. In fact, it's one of those programmes I struggle to watch more than one at a time of. Yeah. Because I just couldn't take three episodes at a time. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, we all kind of know the definition of comfort telly. I mean, you nailed it there with kind of, you know, cookery programs, property programs, panel shows. Um, yeah. You mentioned Taskmaster. You're a big fan of Taskmaster, which we'll get Just to. But, <laughs> but like looking at, say, the cookery programs, where do you draw the line? I mean, are you Master Chef, Bake Off, and then... You you won't watch the Australian version, say, or no. are you just happy watching any of, of that ilk? No, that's that's oh, it's it's utter overkill. I mean, yeah, there's so much. I mean, I used to watch Master Chef, but it, it seemed when one finished, another one started, but a different mm. version. Like there's professionals, amateurs, and then uh, I only I only enjoyed the latter stages really when you know the competent and they're doing great stuff and. That yeah, the Great British menu as well kept changing. Yeah, you know, the goody bits and bits really annoy me. So I think the ultimate. I don't watch most of them now. I used to watch Saturday morning, uh, kitchen yes. and stuff. You know, because it yeah. it felt it's the perfect time of the week. They know what they're doing on a Saturday morning. Perhaps before I'm going to a match and I'm eating some food before I go out. It's just easy TV, isn't it? I think the ultimate one is the one everyone knows about that I wouldn't think I would watch, which is the Bake Off. Yeah. Because it's the ultimate comfort TV in that. And then, sorry to interrupt, but they know it, don't they? They, they kind yeah. of create that programme with that in mind, don't they? Clearly. Yeah. I mean, I'm a home cook, but I don't bake at all. So <laughs> you'd think there's no interest to me, but it's it's comforting because it's not nasty. It, I think Mel and Sue, the first host, mm. they were... They were going to go with a different approach first episode, and they said, no, don't don't attack the contestants. We need to do it a different way. Yeah. So there's never – the criticism's always measured, and, you know, they don't like – they don't go out of the way to edit it to make it look as though everyone's about to have a nervous breakdown, and I think it just works because <laughs> it feels like a hug. You know, whether people do good or bad, uh, it feels like a hug. So that's the main one on the cooking one, I think, that I would watch, yeah. Is that the main kind of reason that it appeals to so many people, comfort telly, that it feels like a hug, that it is relaxing? Yeah. That, yeah, that you can kind of just blank out the outside world. And, and, and that kind of brings us to a second question, really, which is, do you think during the pandemic, and then maybe post-pandemic as well, that importance has been heightened to want that? Yeah, I think we'd never need an escape more than we did in yeah. the past two years. I mean... Yeah, the first year of the pandemic, I was looking at infection rates in Trafford and across the country. You were being fed how many people died every day. And it's like the news was just, I mean, the news tends to give you bad news anyway. The news never opens with good news, does it? Very rarely. (laughs) But I mean, it was just relentlessly terrible and you hadn't, you know, and something we never experienced before. So the need to escape was even bigger. And I felt, yeah, during, because I work from home, I never turn the TV on during the day apart to watch sport. So I don't know if the World Cup's during the day or cricket, of course, which I was, I did consider doing for this one, but I know you hate it, so I didn't. (laughs) Uh, And I'm probably more passionate about TV, to be honest, so that's fair enough. Uh, Yeah, I started watching a bit of TV during the day just to escape, just like, give me an hour off from this. It's like... Especially when you're on the internet and you're seeing it all the time. It was relentless. So, yeah, I think it's taken on a bigger role. And with stream, yeah, with Netflix, Amazon Prime, with choices, I think there's just more of it as well. There's more choice, I think. Mm. There's more being made. There's more options for people. And for me, a big section of what I watch is not on TV. It's on YouTube. Yeah. So you talk about food. There's one called Sorted. TV uh, sorted, which is just five guys, two chefs, well, one's left now, three non-chefs that they call normals, and they just do different food stuff. And it's 10-minute little sections, 10, 15 minutes. Right. They'll test gadgets, they'll do a recipe challenge, stuff like that. And I watch Tom Scott, who just does random information stuff. And education-wise, I get more off YouTube, I think, than the TV. So it's good at lunchtime. Yeah, sorry, dinner. I'm northern, so <laughs> can't call it lunch. Uh, yeah, just watching 15 minute segments of there's one on like art and stuff as well. It's like you know, the famous paintings and the stories behind them. I have no interest in art, and yet they've done so well <laughs> that I'm absolutely drawn into these stories of famous artists. You know, like 
Edward Hopper's Night Hawks and stuff. It's like, wow. Yeah. So it's not just TV. Uh, much of the stuff I watch on YouTube, of course, was on TV at some point. But yeah, there's so many ways to get your content now that it's quite easy to get very quick, a very quick hit of comfort TV. Yes. Or just comfort definitely. material, basically. Yeah. Whichever way you want to watch it. Yeah. I mean, because I have regular breaks throughout the day because I work from home and basically. I mean, you, you should. should. <laughs> yeah, and instead of having like a lunch break, I'll have kind of yeah. five minute breaks just interspersed. And, and so many of those five minute breaks involve putting a kettle on, watching like a four minute thing on Taskmaster, you know, some kind of funny moment from a previous series. And yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. But looking at the kind of, you know, the cookery programs, Brooklyn Nine Nine, panel shows, the kind of examples you give, right, you know, from pointless to the chase. Is there an inherent snobbery still, do you think? Even though they're hugely popular, these programmes, uh, are people snobbish about the idea of comfort telly? Are we looked down on from some quarters? And, you know, people who all insist upon, well, line of duties, let's say, or kind of edgier programmes, for want the better word? I, I don't know. Maybe you should answer that. Have you seen? I've not seen it really. I mean, reality TV, probably, but I'm the snob. So, uh, right. but I keep my views to myself because everyone likes different stuff. So until now, I'm saying it now for the first time. You know, I I hate stuff like Love Island and that sort of stuff. But if people want to watch it, it's none of my business to be honest. Uh, we all like different stuff, and I do watch some other reality stuff. You know, it's, as I've just mentioned, one or something like. Yeah, it's not for me to. We all like different stuff. That's fine. I. I don't see much snobbery. I think, like, panel shows, the UK does it better than anyone in the world. There's no reason to be snobbery. I think so, yeah. I think yeah. there's a danger, though. I I just want to mention something that's not come for TV. I finished Sherwood last night. Right. Which is the best thing I've seen on TV this year. Yeah. And I spent so much time re-watching old episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine or Tatamaster when there's a hundred brilliant drama series out there that I don't get to because... I want to just turn off in the evening, that maybe I need to step away a bit from comfort TV and mix it up because Sherwood's not made me feel bad. It's just made me feel good at watching something so brilliantly put together. Yeah. You know, something like Chernobyl as well, which is one of the greatest dramas I've seen in the last five years. They don't make you feel bad, but they're not comfort TV. So if there's mm. any snobbery, I don't think it's snobbery, but I think there's a danger that you can just sit there endlessly watching stuff that allows you to turn your brain off, allows you to sit on your phone. I think that's a big thing. Because yeah. I'm glued to yeah. my phone. Yeah. I can watch Comfort TV whilst just flicking on Twitter. I'm not sure that's a good thing. Whereas with the last episode of Sherwood, I didn't look at my phone once, which is the only time I don't do that is when I go to the cinema. So, so it has its uses. So I don't know, unless you know snobbery. There's always snobbery. I mean, there's a there'll be a backlash against Line of Duty. If people say they like it, There'll be someone waiting up to say it's terribly written, generic and cliched, but that's the way of t- any TV in a way that if someone likes something, someone has to dislike it. There has mm. to be a backlash. So, Well, it has to be a backlash and there has to be a balance, which which you kind of sum up there that, you know, watching different types of television, because sometimes you do just want to lie on the sofa and you do just want to like look at your phone and glance up sometimes and, and maybe see a scene from some comedy that you've seen, you know, previously. Um, I'm with you on a reality TV. I've got no problem with reality TV, and I'm not snobbish about it at all. My problem with it is that it makes me feel old, and it makes me feel old because I'll avoid it. I managed to avoid like Love Island. It's not aimed at me. I, I haven't seen a single second of it. But they then go onto my bloody panel shows. <laughs> yeah. So, and I don't know who they are. And then you Google them, and you go, you end up like saying out loud about some TikTok star. It's got 6.8 million fucking followers. Yeah. And, and then you realise how old you sound by saying that. And then you resent them. So, yeah. Your boxing matches, the only way is Essex people, just everywhere. Hate, hate how you can become a celebrity so easy. And this is not a go at them. They've made success in their life. They can do it however they want. Yeah. It's the system that allows people doing dances on the yeah. Look at listen to us. <laughs> it's it's uh, Harry Enfield's scumpy old men where they just go around smashing things up. That's you, us now. You know what? I, and you it's happened. In, it, it was inevitable. It's always going to happen. It, you can't fight the tide. Um, 
You put something in your notes which kind of struck a chord with me, which you said, you. I asked for examples of, of kind of come and tell you watched, and um, you said there's two programs that are inherently terrible that you've watched loads of, and you said Big Bang Theory and Top Gear. I would wager that there's a lot of people out there who would, who would go along with that, because I'm one myself. But Big Bang Theory... I love it. There's, there's just something about that program that really gets under my skin. And yeah, I've probably seen every episode twice because I, of the sheer amount of time it's on. Yeah, there was a there was a light bulb moment. I watched them all and then I had the light bulb moment after. This is a terrible, terrible show. Yeah, it is. The, the weird thing is there's a clip where they take the laughter track out. Yes, I've seen it. And yeah. it is creepy as hell. When you just yes. hear the words... <laughs> You realize the misogyny that, you know, Howard, it's always Howard's. <laughs> I'm not giving you any uh, better call soul spoilers here, but Howard's get such a bad rap in TV shows. Uh, yeah. Please, if anyone knows of a good one in the TV, yeah. Uh, even in Airplane 2, I think. I'm trying dies. to think of a good Howard. <laughs> well, it's very, quite rare as well. Yeah, the misogyny of Howard, he's, like a, he's such a creep. And they're all not that nice people. When you think how they act, it's like... Yeah, why did I watch this? Because, again, I just turned my brain off. Something like Big Bang Theory, I never laugh out loud, ever. Mm. And it's a TV show, and yet I watched them all religiously, and then only afterwards I thought, why did you do that? And the old Top Gear, I have no interest in cars. I don't drive. I know James James May's okay. (laughs) The other two... Oh, entertaining, no. but you know the horrible people. I mean, really, really Jeremy are. Clarkson's one of those people, isn't he? He's like, well, yeah, he's funny, but, you know, he's an arsehole, isn't he? Let's be honest, he is. He's, he's close to being the devil. To yeah. yeah. And yeah, I, but they made TV that you wanted to watch. The challenges are so entertaining. It's like, why am I doing well, this? Well, you know how manufactured it is and how artificial oh, it is yeah, as course. well. It's, it's all set up, and yet they know how to draw you in. It's paid... Page turning TV, really. There was a great thing they did for Comic Relief years ago. Um, I think it might have been Comic Relief, it might have been Children in Need, but we did some kind of thing, Top Gear, and it was so obviously artificial. You know, they were, I think they were trying to make a garden for charity, and yeah. it all went wrong, and the digger went wrong, and you know, they basically ruined the whole thing. And Gary Lineker was talking to Richard Hammond afterwards in the studio, and he said, you know, oh, of course, you know, as funny as it was, it was all kind of made up, that, you know, kind of thing. And uh, Richard Hammond went, no, it wasn't, it was all real. And Gary Lineker was like, what? what? Come on. You, 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 sort, yeah. you would sort of people's intelligence now. And Rich Adams goes, no, no, it's all real. It's like, who? And they just realise that that's how they view you. They just see us as dribbling idiots who will yeah. fall for it and believe that to be all non-scripted. But Please. I still watch it. I still watch yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, it's obviously new presenters now and they're great. They're growing into it. But is mm. it as good as the old no. one? No, mm. no. No, and is I, that why? Is it because you need to hate? You need that edge. <laughs> I think it's getting Maybe. better, definitely. Uh, but what? Honestly, watch ten minutes Stuart Lee clip on YouTube yeah, about yeah, Top yeah. Gear. Uh, Richard the Hamster Hammond. It is honestly, if you're Daily Mail reader, don't watch it. <laughs> it's saying I, I think, you. Um, the, it's the best amazing. way to describe it is a skewering. He is skewered. Oh, it's, um, I watched it <laughs> yesterday. It's abs- that's how, yeah, it's the perfect 10 minutes of comedy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, uh, it's weird that you don't have to look. I mean, I think I've got away from that now. I think I watch, I think Friends to insult Asan. I think Friends, again, I've watched it without a laughter track. And the lines are so banal, many of them. But it just worked. It just, I guess it's people, a group of people who love each other. People get comfort from that and New York apartment and the coolness of it all. And yet, though, if, yet if it's starring... Cool, were they? When you look at the light, I don't know. It's just, yeah. It, it, it must be good, though, Howard, because if it's you take the same premise, let's say Dharma and Greg, for, you know, yeah. use a 90s example. No way I'm going to subject myself to Dharma and Greg. Because it was garbage. Yeah, but Friend, Friends is still one of the most streamed programs now. So that's, it must be good. The quality of the lines, the quality of the writing must have yeah. been good. I mean, the characters are just horrendous. Um, yeah, casting. Ch- yeah, they got the yeah, casting. Right, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, Rachel Green is, is one of the worst characters to have ever been conceived on screen. Yeah. 
But anyway. I mean, uh, yeah, the misogyny again of Joey. It's just like, I know, I'm not going to have a go now because at the time no one had a problem. So why? I don't mm. like judging stuff in the future. No, no, you know I'm I mean? the same. I'm the same. It's, I've seen examples of that on social media recently. And um, I don't really like it. Attitudes do change even in a five-year period, let's say, yeah. as they should to actually be celebrated. What you shouldn't do is then go back and look at a program made 15 years ago and go, oh, look at the lines that someone said there. You know, it shows how far we're advancing yeah, as a society. Thankful that, yeah. Yes, exactly. Anyway, let's get on to, um, back to comfort telly and Brooklyn Nine-Nine is something you mentioned. I, I, I love that. And, and do you know what? I've not seen a single episode, uh, until lockdown. And then I just binge watched oh, the whole good. thing. Um, we've got to talk about the Tetris. Yeah. <laughs> no, but don't no. say Brooklyn Nine-Nine is what it really annoys me. That had to be stopped. Sorry if we go, I'll be very quick. Yeah. That had to be stopped because it was New York police and it was giving a New York police don't have a good, like many police forces around mm. the world don't have a very good reputation right now. And really, it came under a lot of attack because it was portraying an inaccurate, you know, it was an inaccurate portrayal of what the police force is like. And that enraged me because who on earth is watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine thinking, oh, this is what it's really like. I yeah. mean, it was fan- yeah. It was always fantasy for me. It was a comedy show that just happened to be a police, in a police yeah. force. And it was, pro- it had... It had a really diverse cast. It was pro-gay rights. It had lots of pluses about it, and it had to end. It was dropped once, came back, and then had to end and deal with issues because it was inaccurate. And I just can't believe that people expect accuracy from... At the hot point of watching these things is detachment from reality. It wasn't a documentary. I didn't sit there thinking, oh, is this what it's like being a police man or woman? I, not for one moment did I think it was remotely realistic. <laughs> Oh, it, it annoys me that people can't detach these things from reality. But yeah, yeah. anyway, rant over. Well, but yeah, the detectorists. Yeah. The detectorists is just glorious television for me, and and it, I, I think it perfectly epitomizes what we're talking about here because yeah, everything about it, it, it just washes over you, doesn't it? You you just you, you feel cleansed afterwards. It's so nice. It's so fundamentally nice, um, and it yeah. shows that there's room for nice television. Yeah, so to people that don't know, it's Mackenzie Cook and Toby Jones, is it? Yeah, yeah. Two yeah. metal detectors just trying to get that big, that big find, basically. And yeah. it's a huge, it's just a huge hug on a TV screen. Yeah, and they're making a special, seventy-five minutes yes. special. Yeah, this year I'm not sure about that because even my favourite comedy of all time, Only Fields and Horses, should have ended when it ended. Uh, it. Coming back so is always dangerous. When do you, what do you mean when they won them? The yeah, they did. They did yeah. later ones, didn't they? Even Blackadder did a special one, I think, for the opening of the O2, the, the yeah. Millennium Down. Yeah, it's like, yeah. You've got, you know, I know you want to see more, but really, you don't, you know, leave them wishing for more. I think the detectives will be fine. Mackenzie Cook will do it well, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah. The greatest, the te- detectorist reminds me the greatest joy of watching TV is telling, is getting someone else into it. So I relentlessly tell people about Brooklyn Nine-Nine and plenty have said, nah, didn't get into it, which is fair enough. People like different stuff. Uh, you know, I never got into Seinfeld. I just don't understand it at all. It's, I, it leaves me cold a little bit. I admire I it rather than yeah. like it. So people like different stuff, and I gave a friend a detectorist box set, and six months later, oh, I had a chance to watch it. I was like, he's never going to watch it. Is he? <laughs> and then about six months later, oh my, I've watched it all in a weekend. Yeah. <laughs> I've started watching it again, and yeah, and it's just the joy that gives you. Oh, someone else gets it. It's like to pass right. it on. Yeah, that you've so, yeah something that's not well known because it wasn't that well known. I don't think don't know which channel it was on, but someone passed it on to me, and I told someone else and. Yeah, it's not one of those programs that everyone knows about. I think it used to be on BBC Four when it first yeah. appeared. But and we should give a very quick shout out to Shit's Creek um, on yeah. Netflix. And just a kind of an important factor of Shit's Creek is that the first series is far more. Uh, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for here? The characters soften, I would say, as as the series go on, and that's an important thing for me because they're quite dislikable in the first series, and it jars with the feel that they're going with for the program. And then it all starts to make sense. So just kind of stay with Shit's Creek if you can. Um, right, we've got a couple of minutes left. So over to you for Taskmaster. Why should people watch 
Taskmaster. <laughs> well, if you if I told you what Taskmaster is about, no one will watch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. It started as a, uh, it started as an Edinburgh Fringe show, basically that's moved to TV. Mm. So essentially, you get it was comedians. There's been the odd exception where it isn't a comedian. Uh, Richard Osman's been on, right? and they have widened it a bit here and there. But it's generally comedians that come on five contestants. They're set tasks, stupid tasks, pointless, banal tasks on, like, throw a lemon into a basketball hoop, and you're like, who would you know, but you can't use your hands or something. Mm. If I describe it, it's like, why on earth would I want to watch that? And it's the ultimate comfort TV that I could just re-watch because things go wrong, funny things happen, people panic and make terrible, terrible decisions. <laughs> People do stuff that's genius. The tasks are brilliantly put together. And ultimately, it's a triumph for casting because within about three episodes, you see the people behind the the comedians that you see on stage or in TV programs. Yeah. And you see them bond as well. And yeah. I've, so many lineups have been announced. I think, ooh, I'm not sure about this one. And within three episodes, I don't think there's been a poor series. The only ones that have suffered is the ones during covid because they, there was no audience in the studio. Because after they do tasks out in the the world, uh, they always come back and discuss it in the studio, and that's a key part of its success. Mm. The discussion afterwards, arguing with each other, the points, you know, uh, and stuff like that. And I realised what the big problem was as well: the contestants themselves couldn't sit close to each other. Yeah. That destroyed the chemistry between them. Just that tiny little thing. Well, and the, it, yeah, the, series, the series that's just been on now is one of the best ever, I think. And they're sat next together again, you know, <laughs> and they're shouting, they were arguing with each other about the points. And yeah, I would just dive in. I would say you can do any. The first ones are only five episodes, and then there's a champion of champions. So every five series, the five winners go off against each other in one or two episodes. I'm yeah. just going to episode seven, my favourite, I think, with James, likes of James Acaster on. <laughs> yes, Jessica particularly Nappets. when James Acaster gets told off by uh, Greg, that is a yeah, very Jessica Nappet, yeah. Kerry Goddiman, Phil Wang and Rod Gilbert, every one of them nails that series. It's yeah. brilliant. So I would give that one a go if you know nothing about Taskmaster. Give it a bit of time because you'll think, yeah, you know, they do. They do a very unfunny intro with each other. You know, or it's deliberately awkward, and you like you might be a couple. There's the odd task that you think there no, that was pretty boring. Yeah, you know, they can't hit gold every time, and I think some tasks never make it to TV anyway. But ultimately, it's just it's wonderful. An hour of TV. Yeah, I that makes me laugh. I think it's weird that makes me laugh. Panel shows will make me laugh more than perhaps comedy shows will. So yeah. would I lie to you or something that make will probably make me laugh out loud? Bob Mortimer will make me laugh out loud. One of his stupid stories than a specific comedy series. So, well, we've we've got to wrap things up because we've got to get to Ali and the Blues. But very quickly before we go, um, Bridget Christie in um, the last series of Taskmaster. Do you yeah. know who she's married to? Stuart Lee, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good good uh, I, a trivia if you don't know it, yeah. Yeah, I was just uh, flicking the other day and she was on Route 101 as well from years ago. So and she oh. was so droll and funny on that as well. She put yeah. babies in, by the way. <laughs> of the no- she has got children because uh, of the noise they make. So why, I why can can't they just do a different noise? She, well, she said, why can't they just do a different noise sometimes? Yeah. But yeah, I, I, can't, I can't say goodbye without mentioning Early Doors as well, which is... Yeah. What the royal family wishes it was. So, Good line. Yeah. You can't, I think you'd have to buy it on DVD. I think you do with the text. There's no way you can't stream it anywhere. It's no, really Early annoying. Doors is the greatest. It's only two series again, the greatest comedy. If you don't buy it, just follow, follow the account on Twitter that does clips every day. But if you haven't watched it, you should really just do it in full. It's absolutely beautiful and perfect, perfect comfort TV for me. Well said and well rounded up, sir. Um, thank you very much, Howard. Um, and now over to Ali and the Blues. Hi, Ali. Thanks for joining us today and allowing us to share in your great passion for the Blues. Uh, hi, Steve. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. What, what an absolute uh, 
pleasure to be able to talk about something that, that isn't football in the office. Yes. Really yeah. looking forward to it. Being, I, I've being, got to say, I, I hope people are enjoying these pods because to do them is, is it's like, it's a real nice change of pace and it's, it's really good to, to not, like when we were saying off air, that it, it's a nice kind of break at the moment from football. Absolutely. And, and uh, just in terms of thinking about stuff that isn't football, it's, yes. it's quite good for our mental health. I'm probably speaking for all of us here. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so with yourself, it's a really intriguing subject, this, because it's one that I kind of, I've dallied with in the past. And, and I've got, you know, so I would certainly say I have a sincere liking and admiration for, um, but it's for blues and particularly kind of, how would you describe it, Ali? Would you say old traditional blues? Would you break it down beyond the blues, if you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's various ways we can do it. I mean, it, it, like all kinds of music and genres, and uh, once you start talking to music geeks and music yeah. artists, you can you can break the genres down into sub-genres and sub-genres of the sub-genres <laughs> and, and keep going forever. Um, the, the, the way I, I like to think about it, I think there are uh, real there are three generations to the blues. Um, there's the blues that probably you and I grew up with that was being played by the the rock generation of mostly white musicians yes. that came after Led Zeppelin and, and Cream and Jimi Hendrix and that kind of era. Um, and then there's, the, uh, there's a big Chicago blues scene of the 1950s that was incredibly influential in... Uh, in the development of rock music, which is, you know, Muddy Waters and B.B. King and John Lee Hooker and uh, the kind of music that, that uh, in the 1980s was, it seemed certainly in, in kind of uh, small-town Scotland, I think probably small-town Wales as well, there was a long period in the mid-80s that it seemed every pub you went into on a Saturday night had some kind of Blues Brothers tribute act playing Sweet Home Chicago. Yeah. Uh, and there, there was a real kind of blues revival going on, and mainly because it was, it's kind of a really easy music to get a, a band together and one rehearsal, and you can do twelve songs and, and play for an hour in a pub. Um, so uh, yeah, I kind of grew up with that. I was you know, I, I hit I was seventeen, eighteen in about nineteen eighty three, eighty four when when all of that was taking off. So it was kind of my first experience of, of going out drinking and clubbing and um, going to gigs. There was a lot of that going on. Um, so yeah, but uh, the, in terms of the the generations, um, when you go back before the Chicago blues things, there's a big thing happened around about nineteen late forties, early fifties, which is they invented uh, valve amplifiers and guitar pickups, right? Which basically invented electric blues and electric music, and that's where rock and roll came from. And um, when you go back before that, so before the days of amplifiers and pickups. You get into the the era of acoustic blues or traditional blues or country blues and and uh, and that's really what I'd like to talk about today. Not because it's the only kind of blues that I'm interested in, but I think it's the one that's got the most interesting stories and and mythology and and probably the most diversity in terms of the music and and the the surrounding culture. So yeah, that that's the one that really catches my uh, my obsessions. So the mythology behind it and the stories, the great stories behind it, do they appeal to you as much as the music or kind of alongside the music? Totally. I mean, I think one one of the great great truths about popular music, whether we're talking rock and roll or pop music or whatever, and yeah, is it's not just the music. It's about the the image and the backstory mm. and the whole, you know, like the of the marketing people say, you don't sell the sausage, you sell the sizzle. Um, <laughs> So that that's absolutely true. Of uh, you know, we know. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I for my sins, I, I spent about ten years as a music journalist. So I've I've seen an awful lot of music PR, you know, press releases in my time. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I find fascinating uh, about the the pre war blues scene is that uh, almost none of these musicians had any kind of formal. Uh, ID papers. They didn't have birth certificates. They were born. They were um, these were African American musicians who were born into the first or second generation beyond slavery, um, almost exclusively into absolute dirt poverty. Uh, a lot of them didn't even know their names. Literally, they didn't wow. know what their their uh, their Christian name was. So, so you have people like uh, J. B. Lenoir, who's one of the the blues uh, instigators, originators. Um, people tried to find out what JB stands for. And as far as anyone can tell, it doesn't stand for anything. You know, if his parents ever gave him, like, you know, uh, 
John Brown or whatever his name might have been. He doesn't know. He was just, he was always JB. He was born JB and he died JB. Um, and, but the other thing that happened is that because these musicians were going from town to town, uh, playing mostly with buskers and itinerant performers. And in the 1920s, when they began to develop the technology to make records and, uh, what would happen is these kind of cottage industry record labels would just hire a hotel room or, or a space somewhere. Mm. They'd set up one of these recording machines and just bring in musicians off the street and they would have one take to sing and play, you know, a, a song that they knew, whether it was their song or someone else's. Um, and often these musicians would go to uh, different towns and they'd go to different record labels and they would give different names and record the same song again and right. get paid ten get paid ten dollars <laughs> each time. Right. Um, or or other th- or they they do it the other way that you would have um, uh, the same musician who would have one name to record kind of dirty devil's music blues and a completely different name to record religious gospel music and uh, maybe a third name to, to record kind of more country, uh, 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 you know, a, a different style of, of finger picking or whatever. Um, so you would have these musicians and the when the historians and the musicologists tried to put it together, they would think that there were three different musicians on the scene and actually it turned out there was only one. Um, and then the really amusing one that you would get is that, the, sometimes uh, the the less reputable musicians would go to a strange town and they would borrow the name of an established uh, musician that people had heard about on the grapevine. Oh, this guy's good. Mm. So you know, if a uh, you know a, a Blind Lemon Jefferson was building up a reputation as being a really good uh, good performer, just other itinerant traveling musicians would turn up in a town and say, I'm Blind Lemon Jefferson. <laughs> and of course, because there were no photos and there was no documents, no one had any way to disagree with it. Um, uh, I, I recently found there's at least one musician that I know of, I think Well Wenders his name was, um, that people believed there was uh, one musician who at one time was, was married to uh, Memphis Minnie, who's got a well-known female blues mm. musician. Um, and after he died, turned out there were two of this guy. <laughs> there were two musicians with the same name, both trading on the same backstory. Uh, and, and it was only yeah. long after they were dead and they worked out there were two grades. <laughs> two different Lovely. guys in it. Um, and so there was all this kind of thing going on. And of course, what was actually happening um, is that these people were not only inventing the skeleton of rock and roll, they were not only inventing the the, the blueprint for popular music in the second half of the 20th 20th century, they were inventing the blueprint for how you market rock and roll, how you market the music industry. And what they learned very quickly was that a good backstory will sell your music better and it will sell your gigs better. And if you can create a legend around yourself... Uh, then people will want to come and see the legend. And of course, by, you know, the most famous example of this that you know, everyone will probably know, or a lot of people listening will know, is the story of Robert Johnson, which has been told a thousand times. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, th- this kid who was, you know, in his, in his early twenties playing on the, um, playing in the blues scene, who wasn't really very good. Uh, he was just, just another performing, gigging musician. And he went away for a while, and nobody knew where he went. And about a year later, he returned, and he was the best guitarist anyone had ever seen. Um, and he was singing these songs about having sold his soul to the devil. And he was about going down to the crossroads and falling down on his it's knees. A great Having hound dogs in his tail. And the, <laughs> a few years ago, I had a moment of realisation where if, if I had been still working on a music desk and a press release had come in about a... Norwegian black metal band who t- <laughs> who were telling this story about how they'd been on the, uh, the 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 Oslo black metal scene and they'd been a bit rubbish and then they went away and they sold their souls to the devil and they came back and they were the best band in the universe. I would be like, oh yeah, uh, sure guys, <laughs> yeah, good story. Um, but because it, I mean, there, there's uh, all kinds of angles to this but because it happened a long time ago and particularly because it happened in the kind of um the days before mass media people kind of give a credence to the stories when of yeah. course it is um when when people actually took time to to uh research 
Robert Johnson's life seriously. Uh, the actual story was what happened is he went back to his hometown, he hooked up with a very well established guitar player, and he spent a year practicing like <laughs> hell. <laughs> he just and uh, for for those who like their their gothic anecdotes, uh, there is a story that he did most of practicing in a graveyard. So that presumably where he got a lot of the idea for his gothic backstory from. Um, but he was sitting on gravestones and just practicing until his fingers bled. As, a, as the great Brian Adams once put it. Um, and, and that's how Robert Johnson, of course, that is how Robert Johnson became became so good. He didn't sell a soul to the devil. He, he, uh, he, he just practised, just like everyone else. I mean, but you would have loved it, though, Ali. I mean, if, if you're a music journalist, even, you know, what we're, what we're talking about, 80 years later, maybe, you know, when, yeah. when you were a journalist at, at back then, um, you'd have loved it if Ascori had, had landed on your desk. I mean... Of course, I remember, you know, back in the day of NME and Melody Maker and kind of all these scenes coming out. I mean, they latched onto stories. They laughed on. So, so nothing really in that regards changed, does it? it it's still a huge part of music, isn't it? And of course, uh, Robert Johnson pulled the ab. Uh, he invented the the ultimate um, marketing rock and roll marketing mm. trick uh, of dying a mysterious and violent yes. death at the at the exact age of twenty seven. Yes. Uh, yeah, the, the original yeah. member of the Twenty Seven, uh, <laughs> and when you do that, when you've already got the backstory of, of yeah, you know, the the involvement of the devil and all the rest of it involved, then of course the story takes off like wildfire, um, and that's a you know a major reason why his record sold so heavily after his death and, and went on to influence so many other musicians. But yeah, um, but you know when I uh, when I first started learning about the blues, um, it was really easy to pick up, you, know, you could go down to Woolworths or HMV or whatever record, our price, whatever shops were around in the, uh, in the early to mid eighties. Mm. And you could go in and they would have the same 20 greatest hits of Elmer James, greatest hits of Muddy Waters. And every shop would have the same records, but they've you know, very limited number of artists. Um, and I, I read a lot, I've always read a lot, but I, I had a, a period of reading History of the Blues by you know, people like Peter Goralnik and Crew Marcus and these American music, uh, music historians. Um, and they would tell all these incredible stories of, uh, you know, the, these wild guys with wild names. Um, but of course, it was really difficult to hear their music. Um, so what I did, I, I think, there, there's, a, there's a story of technology here. Um, back in the 80s, when I was a student, the only way I had of playing vinyl records, I had no, I had no kind of ghetto blaster style 1980s tape recorder, but the only way I had to play vinyl was uh, a really old 1960s mono box, one of those <laughs> things with a handle. Anyone who's old enough will remember these things. I think every primary school in the 1970s had them. Um, a little, a, a hard, uh, a hard, solid block of, of uh, vinyl and, and plastic and wood. Uh, and it had a speaker and an arm and a handle, and you could carry it where you want, plug it in and play your record. And it sounded absolutely terrible to play everything except these old blues records. Now, if you tried to play, I don't know, a, a, a Giorgio Moroder record on this thing, you know, no, don't bother. No point. But you put an old Elmore James record screaming, you're hearing something very like how the original artists intended it. Um, so for, you know, the, when I first discovered this music, uh, I was kind of listening to it in the way that, you know, the artists intended. Um, and it, it stayed with me from, from the eighties for, you know, a good 20 years without really going anything. And then, Steve, something remarkable happened about what, what would be 15 years ago from now. Um, the invention of the internet. Yeah. yeah. Um, because where I'd gone from you know, knowing a fairly limited number of, of artists and, and having quite you know, uh, minimal access to, to their music and, and to their stories, um, suddenly you could not only go on Wikipedia and look up, you know, if you're interested in John Lee Hooker, who you've, you you develop an interest in John Lee Hooker because you see him in the Blues Brothers movie or whatever. Who's that guy? You look him up. You can then see all the musicians. Oh, right. Oh, okay. He played with Sonny Boy Williamson. Oh, okay. And you can click on Sonny Boy Williamson. Sonny Boy Williamson will take you back to John Lee Hooker. John Lee Hooker will take you back to, you know, yeah. and, and you can go on. And not only within Wikipedia, but because the Blues is a... Uh, 
a very well documented um, art form. An, an awful lot of geeks like me have, have put an awful lot of time into documenting um, who did what and when. There's all these encyclopedias of the Memphis music scene or the New Orleans blues scene or whatever, and you can find whole records of archives, record labels, and just keep digging and keep digging and keep digging. And, of course, at the same time, what you can now do is you can go on YouTube and you can go to Spotify, and if these guys only ever recorded one dirty, grainy uh, mm-hmm. uh, wax cylinder in 1922, it's highly likely that somebody somewhere kept one copy of that, um, and then when broadband technology and, and yeah, YouTube and all the rest that came along, they uploaded it. So now what you can do is you can not only uh, learn about these artists with their incredible life stories, um, as you're reading about it and as you're like clicking a link late, by, you know, late into the small hours of the morning with a glass of whiskey, as I like to do on a fairly regular basis, um, you can click another and you can actually hear these guys' voices coming out over your speakers. Um, and that totally, totally uh, kind of changed and reinvented my experience of the blues for me. And, and it was really, um, it, it's weird how my initial love of the blues, I think, came from a very limited technology, this thing of the old mono record player, which yeah. blues records the only thing you can play. Um, my love was then absolutely rekindled by the, the very opposite, you know, the, the cutting edge of technology, which actually uh, saved the legacy of hundreds and hundreds of, of these, you know, long-forgotten uh, uh, blues artists and, and, and their stories. It's, it's a lovely thing to go down kind of a musical rabbit hole on, on online, particularly you know, with Wikipedia, as you say, whilst listening to the music. And is there any examples that come to mind with, with you personally from that? Yeah, glad you asked that. See, it's almost like I queued you up in a class. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I would love to tell you a story of a guy who. Uh, was a huge star in the 1940s, like major, like one of the early, uh, early iterations of a pop star in many ways, um, who has largely been forgotten now. And I think he's a really interesting person to talk about today. Uh, someone called Josh White. Now, Josh White was born in, I think, 1913 or 1914. Um, again, whenever you look up these people's bios, nobody's ever quite sure because often the, the people themselves didn't know when they were born. Yeah. They're just like, oh, yeah, I'm about this, this age now, so I must have been born about then. Uh, but he was born around about 1913-14. When he was seven years old, I should say he was born in the Deep South, South Carolina, um, and in deep poverty, as, as all these people were, uh, but to a, a quite respectable church-going family. Uh, his dad was a part-time preacher, part or full-time tailor, and and his mum kept an impeccable house that she was very, very proud of. And one day a debt collector, a white debt collector, came to their house to, to um, take back the, the, the weekly equivalent demand from the Peru, whatever they had in those days. Hmm. Um, and while he was there, this white debt collector spat on the floor of their home uh, as a as a just as an insult as a presumably a, a racially charged insult and josh's father was so outraged by this he physically threw him out into the street the guy went away he got himself a posse of a, a lynch mob I, I, I should say who came back uh beat Josh's father half to death and then tied him behind a horse and dragged him through town as a warning to others. Uh, these were deputies. These, these were police officers doing this. Um, they left him for dead. He actually didn't die, he, but he was so severely brain damaged. He spent the you know, the remaining nine years of his life until he did die in a, in a mental asylum. And of course, this was you know, absolutely devastating for the family, for Josh, and also left them absolutely financially destitute. Um, Josh was seven years old at this time. What did what did they do? Well, one of the only things they could do is Josh's mum sent Josh out to work, and where he sent him out, where she sent him out to work was with uh, an old blind uh, street musician, a busker, uh, a guy called Big Boy Arnold. Apparently, he had several names as they all did, but one of them, Big Boy Arnold, um, and he took on Josh as his hat boy. 
because he was blind, uh, Josh's job would be to be his eyes and help him get from town to town and jump trains and, and you know, do hitchhike and all this kind of thing, but also to take the hat around and collect money and make sure nobody stole right. it. Right. Make, make sure people put money in his hat rather than taking it out and all this kind of thing. Um, and, of course, it was Josh's job to entertain, uh, to dance and to join in the choruses. And as the years went by, um, every week, Josh would send $4 back. This is his wages. He would send $4 back, um, and he would go away for weeks or months at a time without seeing his mother um, from the age of seven. Right. Now, Josh got so good at entertaining the, the crowds um, as a, a dancer and then latterly as a singer, as a performer, um, that um, his his employer, uh, uh, um Big Boy Arnold or whichever name he was using at the time started to rent him out to other blind musicians and and uh, he he worked with actually quite a lot of famous uh, musicians of the time including Blind Lemon Jefferson who I mentioned earlier and Josh became a kind of child star on this scene when he was only 12, 13 years old um, and not only of course was he you know dancing and, and singing he was learning to play guitar and he was learning all the songs and because he was working with all these different musicians he was learning a lot of different styles and he was copying and being taught uh, and you know, adopting all these mentors um who basically turned him into this uh young child star phenomenon um and when he was only about 13 14 he recorded a couple of these wax cylinder uh, they called them race records in the 1920s uh, so they were Tiny, uh, uh, little cottage industries where they would like make one box of of singles, uh, mm. which would get sold to a couple of shops, uh, and it was a hit. You might sell a couple of hundred copies. You know that that was kind of scale they were talking about. Um, and one of these, well, one or two of these records that Josh made were uh, successful enough. They were they were good enough that they caught the attention of some big city labels. And cutting a very long story short, um, Josh ended up following a very different path to most of the blues musicians at the time, where most of them went to where the big uh, African-American blues scenes were, particularly Chicago, but sometimes Memphis or New Orleans or, or you know the other big cities, where they would play in blues clubs to exclusively black audiences and people like Muddy Waters, Jolly Hooker, and, and that generation, um, by and large, uh, made a decent living, but very much restricted to their own community. Um, Josh went to New York. I, I don't know how much of it was his choice and how much kind of you know, just fate blew him that way. But he ended up in New York, and particularly in Greenwich Village. And he ended up as basically the, the, the resident musician at a club called Cafe Society. And this was reckoned to be the first racially integrated nightclub in America. Now, at the time, you had clubs where there would be black and white musicians would play together on stage, which was quite revolutionary at the time. Mm -hmm. And you would have clubs where uh, black musicians would play to white audiences. And occasionally, you'd even have clubs where white musicians would play to black audiences. And in New York, where they were quite progressive, there would be clubs like the, the very famously the Cotton Club, where you would have both black and white audiences, but they would be segregated into different parts of the room. So there would be curtains, and the black customers would go this side, and the white customers would go the other side. Um, the, a guy called uh, Barney Hewardson, I think, or Hewards, Barney Hewardson, who set up this club in New York, he wanted it to be fully integrated. So it became the first nightclub uh, in America where... Uh, black and white customers would mix in 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 the uh, club in front of the stage. They would share tables. They would sit beside each other. And not only were the musicians um, kind of meeting each other, working together, uh, learning from each other, um, but so too were the audiences. Um, and while he was there, Josh White, he, he did loads of amazing things, one of which was he set up a, a duet with a white uh, kind of a white society, quite well well to do uh, uh, woman 
called uh, Libby Holman was her name, uh, who was rumoured to have murdered her uh, millionaire husband a few years <laughs> earlier and was kind of just one of these kind of flapper types who was followed by scandal everywhere she went. Um, well, the two of them set up a duet and they would sing these steamy, uh, very sexualized love songs to each other. <laughs> so you had a black man singing love songs to a white woman and a white woman singing of her lust for a black man. Um, on stage to mixed audiences. And of course, you can imagine how that went down in 1940s America. Um, they were getting the, the death threats from the KKK. Uh, there were politicians, you know, uh, making speeches about how decadent and terrible this was and how it would be the, the, the death of everything decent in America. You know, it was properly scandalous at the time. Mm. Um, and in, while they were doing all of this with the music and the culture, there was also a political scene that was, uh, building around it. So you had, uh, musician activists like Woody Guthrie and Paul Robeson um, who were coming and they were holding meetings and they were kind of basically plotting the revolution um, all in this nightclub at the same time. Uh, now, this was happening at the same time as the Second World War, basically, between 1938 and 1948. Um, and as a lot of people will know, after the Second World War, uh, America uh, took a turn against left-wing politics. And, of course, in 1947, Cathy Society was reported to the House of Un-American Activities, McCarthy. Uh, and very quickly after, uh, they lost all their customers. Their, um, the artists were summoned, basically, to the McCarthy tribunals, one by one, and the owners. Uh, the, the, one of the co-owners, actually the owner's brother, uh, refused to testify and was jailed. He ended up in jail for about two years. And basically, McCarthyism killed this club and killed this moment. And Josh White uh, was himself summoned by McCarthy. Um, and he, he, told his, he told his story. Um, he, he told, and one of the reasons we know a lot about Josh White is it was all entered in the uh, the, the the record of state uh, because of the McCarthy uh, hearings. Mm. Um, he, Josh White was one of the first people ever to sing the uh, the song "Strange Fruit," which was written at Cathy Society with Billie Holiday, and he would sing it with Billie Holiday. In the right. band. Okay. Uh, and for anyone who doesn't know, "Strange Fruit" is one of the most haunting, yeah. uh, difficult. Uh, um, horrific songs that's ever been written. It's the story of a lynching. Um, and Josh White at the McCarthy tribunals, he re he carefully, slowly read the words of this one of his songs uh, to, deliberately, so it would be entered in the in the presidential record as, as a, a a legal document. Um, so uh, the, to to cut along <laughs> again, uh, cutting a long story, not very short. Um, this whole business of the McCarthy blacklists basically killed Josh White's career. And then he became very ill in the late 50s. And just at the time when other musicians were being discovered by the particularly white British muse uh, uh, musicians in, uh, around the time of the Beatles and the Animals and, and uh, uh, all, Stones, the, all the... Yeah, yeah. yeah the Stones who were... Who were um, bringing Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters to the world. Josh White missed out on all of this, and his name is just about forgotten. Um, so he was an incredible, fascinating character who deserves a lot more attention. But he had one song in 1944, which became, uh, at least some people claim, it was the first million-selling record oh, really? by, by a black singer in, in American history. Um, it, was, it was called One Meatball, and it was kind of, it, when you hear it, it sounds like a kind of uh, almost like a children's pop song. It, it's really catchy. It is catchy. I yeah, say, yeah. Uh, jo Josh White, um, uh, he's got a very s smooth, honey voice. He wasn't like someone like. Well, uh, sorry to interrupt that. I, I, I was going to say that because you sent a link to this song, and what really struck a chord with me, he's almost a crooner, isn't he? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, he he had a, a really lovely honey voice, and he was very different. Someone like Robert uh, Robert Johnson really did sound like he'd been possessed by the devil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with uh, Josh White was he he was a crooner. I mean, he was an entertainer. Um, above all, he, because of his childhood, because of what he'd been through, he learned how to please a crowd, uh, so he could switch very easily from you know, a very kind of dark and, and haunting 
um, serious voice that he would use to talk about racism and segregation and poverty. He, you know, he would write songs about uh, about poor quality housing. Uh, he wrote a song called "Bad Housing Blues" that begins, "I woke up this morning," as they all do, uh, with with rainwater dripping on my head. Um, and, and my pillow soaked through. And it finishes up saying, look, unless you tear down these ghettos and tear down these slums, we're going to come and like live on the White House lawn. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, there's, a, there's a real sense of threat. And, and he would he would switch between them. But as you say, he had, he had this really sweet voice. And particularly in One Meatball, um, one of the reasons why it became a huge hit is like, like all pop music, it was really popular with kids. And you, you could sing it at a kid's party or whatever. Um, and it tells... It, it tells a story which, on on first, I would say first glance and first listen, it sounds like quite a, a kind of happy little, almost a funny song. Yeah, um, it's, it, it's... it talks about it talks about a little man. That's how I describe him: the little man um, who's starving, hungry, and he's only got fifteen cents in his pocket. And he looks for the cheapest place in town. He goes in, looks at the menu, and the only thing he can afford to buy is one meatball. So he calls over the waiter and explains his situation. And rather than quietly taking his order and going away and bringing him his meatball, the waiter declares in his loudest voice so all the other customers can hear, one meatball? Hey, this guy here, he only wants one meatball. <laughs> and the little man is mortified. He's, he's really embarrassed. And, and um, he, I, I think the, the exact words, he said, well, well, and some bread, sir, if you please. And then there's a line that the waiter hollered down the hall, you get no bread with one yeah. meatball. Now, at that point, the song is kind of like, oh, okay, that's, that's you know, there's something going on there. But then the final verse, it does a really clever thing. It switches from past tense as a story, you know, something that happened a while ago, to present tense. And Josh White sings, now in his dreams, he still hears that call. You get no bread with one meatball. You get no bread with one meatball. You get no bread with one meatball. And in that moment, it stops being a kind of light-hearted little ditty, mm. a moment of embarrassment. And it becomes a song about the lifelong scarring humiliation of poverty. And one really important thing that Josh White told the, uh, the House of American Activities Committee was that when he was working as this uh, hat boy for the for the musicians, they they had to keep him looking as poor and ragged and and uh, you know, urchin like as they could because that way they got more pennies. So even when he was being quite successful, they would rip his clothes, they would keep him starving, they would keep him looking hungry, they would make him as dirty and as smelly as they could, and rather than this being Kind of a kind of Mary Poppins, cheerful song of the South, kind of cheerful, cheerful little, uh, um, you know, happy child. Suddenly, this becomes the, st- the story of a kid who grew up with nothing but constant degradation and humiliation, being laughed at, being mocked, uh, and being patronized for being poor. And all of that. When you learn that story, when you're late at night doing what I did, Googling these people and Googling these stories and Googling these songs, and you put together that story of Josh White's childhood and One Meatball and the story of the humiliation of poverty, suddenly it all makes so much more sense. Hmm. But, Steve, I know you want to move on, but one more thing I have to tell you about One Meatball. Hmm. Like most blues songs, um, it, it, if you look up who who wrote it, it'll either tell you Josh White himself or a couple of musicians who, uh, who uh, sorry, a couple of songwriters who worked at his label at the time. But they didn't write it. Like almost all blues songs, they nicked it. And <laughs> One Meatball as a song goes back at least as far as 1865, where it was written down and published as, as sheet music. Right. Uh, in that version, it was about one fishball. <laughs> right. It, it was about somebody trying to buy half a portion of a fishbowl, <laughs> half a fishbowl, because he couldn't afford to buy the whole fishbowl. Um, and uh, and you know, these these uh, this story, this song was almost certainly a version of a previous folk song that had come back. You know, some people reckon it started in England sometime in the seventeenth century. Um, but the thing that absolutely blows my mind about this 
is you've got this song which, when you hear it in 2022, sounds absolutely current and relevant and important, and all the the messages it contains are matter every bit as much. Mm. They're just as contemporary now. Um, and the characters, you know, the the uh, all the people involved are so familiar now in 2022. They're every bit as familiar and every bit as relevant in 2022 as they were in 1945 or 1865. And that universality, the, these human stories that just are perennially important, you know, they, they never go away, they never change, and God knows, hopefully one day they will, but at least for now, uh, these stories are just as important now as they, as they have been for, you know, over 150 years. And that, that, Steve, is why I love the blues. Oh, mate, mate, I mean, as with technology, we've advanced so much as human beings, less so. Um, and what a way to end. Ali, that was that was really, really interesting, to put it mildly, and, and absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing that with us. Oh, thank you so much for letting me do it. It's a, it's a little story I've been, I've been eager to go off my chest for a couple of years now. So I've, I've been trying to find somebody I could pin down like the... Uh, <laughs> Was it the, uh, the 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 ancient mariner or the wedding feast? I need I need somebody to grab. I have to tell you the story. So uh, so yeah, thanks to, to and, you. And, and the thing is, what strikes me as well is, is there's so much many more Josh Whites out there, isn't there? There's so many more fascinating stories, and oh, not not just attributed to the blues as well. I mean, obviously folk and um, you know um, soul music. And there's so many fascinating stories, and um, I love to kind of go down those rabbit holes, like I say, and, and um, hopefully other people listen to us do too. Uh, well, all, all I can say, first of all, I, I hope everyone will go to YouTube immediately and, and like, yes. there are several different recordings of, of One Meatball in there and, and make sense of it. But no, do do please learn more about Josh White and all the musicians who, are, who we talked about and, and any others you can discover about. And please, if you find any good ones, send them my way. Um, and, also, and, and just, you know, read more and, and appreciate what we've got because uh, all of this is out there. And if you had told me, uh, just a, a final thought, if you had told me in whatever, 19, 1983, when I bought my first Muddy Waters album or whatever, hmm. um, if you told me that in the year 2022 I'd be able to, you know, sit down with a little box on my knee yeah. and basically listen to every uh, any and every blues record that ever been recorded that I wanted to, I would have thought that the future was going to be the most wonderful place. <laughs> 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 We have we have we have learned that these things come with you know, shades of light and dark, yes. and that the world the world is never quite as, uh, as uh, amenable as you think it's going to be. Uh, but you know we are we are moving forward, and, and yeah, let's let's uh, carry the spirit of Josh White and, and help make the world a slightly better place. Absolutely, uh, thank you very much, Ali, and um, and that's a wrap for today, folks. Um, moving towards football, we're off to see which city player Chelsea have put a bid in so far this morning. <laughs> in the meantime, take care of yourselves, everyone. Be well and forever up the blues, both a team and, of course, the music. 